It's Monday, November 18th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Washington is all about the impeachment hearings right now. There was a wild moment that played out last week as ousted ambassador to Ukraine Marie Ivanovich testified. She got to answer in real time to Twitter attacks from the president. More testimony released from other officials also tied Trump to the delay in Ukraine funds. This week, there will be eight people testifying across three days, including Gordon Sondland, ambassador to the EU. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us for a breakdown of testimony so far. Next, there's a new vodka out on the market that aims to help stop climate change. It is made solely from carbon dioxide and water, and the process results in a carbon-negative vodka. Chemist Stafford Sheehan was working on a project to make renewable fuel from air, and one of the fuels that he made was ethanol. Then he purified that and made a few beverages from it. But while the science creates a chemically pure vodka, some argue that it lacks soul and character. Adam Rogers, author of Proof, The Science of Booze, joins us for how this vodka helps fight climate change. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I um, obviously don't dispute that the president has the right to withdraw an ambassador at at, at any time for any reason. Um, But what I do wonder is why it was necessary to smear my reputation. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. The impeachment inquiry continues. We're in the public phase now. Let's start off what happened this past Friday with Marie Ivanovich's testimony. The Republicans had hoped to strike a peaceful and a respectful tone with Ivanovich. She has said that she was the victim of a smear campaign and she was ousted as the ambassador there. And then the president tweeted during her testimony saying, oh, you know, she's uh, everywhere Marie Ivanovich turned or went turned bad. She started off in Somalia. How did that go? And Adam Schiff at one point said, hold on a second. The president is tweeting about you right now in real real time. You know, what do you think of this? And gave her the opportunity to respond. How did that go over for the president and Republicans? You're right in saying that Republicans were hoping to strike a peaceful tone. They had hoped to sort of have Yovanovitch's testimony go by quietly. She wasn't involved in the call with the Ukrainian president that's in question. She was no longer working inside the State Department. She had taken a fellowship outside of the State Department at that point. When the call happened, she wouldn't have been privy to any information about this topic that is the subject of all of this impeachment inquiry. And instead of sort of having her be an unremarkable witness who they could argue wasn't relevant, the president took to Twitter and posted this tweet that you said, Democrats like Adam Schiff described as witness intimidation, as an attack on Yovanovitch which made her testimony appear even more intriguing and more interesting. And I must say, we've only seen two witnesses so far, but Yovanovitch may go down as the most clear and compelling witness. She was unflappable throughout her testimony. She talked about being forced out of Ukraine by her own country at the in, basically in the middle of the yeah. night. And what she was trying to do there that prompted the president to, and his allies to go so viciously after her. And and you're right. You know, she's not directly tied to the center of the uh, what we're hearing with the impeachment inquiry, with the, the phone call that the president had with the Ukrainian president. But her role in all of this is that it seemed like because uh, Rudy Giuliani was getting the gears moving on 
trying to, quote unquote, pressure the Ukrainians to get into the investigations, she was almost like this roadblock because it seemed like she didn't want to go along with it. And her testimony even said that she said, no, I would not have pushed the Ukrainians for these investigations. So she was like the first thing to happen to set, start setting everything else in motion with Sondland and Giuliani. But yeah, the president could not resist and, and he attacked her that way. And, and she even said later on that it was very intimidating. And as you said, she was very credible, very sympathetic witness there. People applauded her when she left, when she was done for the day. That's right. You don't often see standing ovations at the end of congressional hearings, but the audience at this one gave her a standing ovation. Chris Wallace of Fox News described her saying that if you could watch her testimony and not feel bad for her, that you didn't have a pulse. Um, I think that this was really just some of the most convincing. And, And I suppose we shouldn't be surprised that trained career diplomats who've worked in extremely high pressure countries at extremely high pressure times would be able to handle themselves at a congressional hearing, which she really sort of gave a workshop on how to get up in a, in a contentious hearing and, and give a testimony. Right. Uh, OK, more testimony. They released testimony from David Holmes. He was an official for the United States Embassy in Kiev. Uh, we also got testimony from Tim Morrison, who was the National uh, National Security Council aide. Both of their testimony kind of ties the president a lot closer to this. It has to do with uh, uh, conversations that he had with Gordon Sondland and basically Gordon Sondland saying, hey, I had a bunch of conversations with the president and and these two men kind of tie them together, tie the president closer to all this. That's right. This is a bit like watching a puzzle get put together. It so totally um, maybe Yovanovitch is a bit of the edges, the sort of not the central part of the picture, but the, the lead into the picture. And now we see more testimony that was given, uh, I believe, a couple of weeks ago now coming out publicly, this public version of the, of the transcript that we're getting that starts putting the pieces together and, and connecting conversations we knew were happening, conversations we didn't know were happening with the president and with the players on the ground. We suspect, those of us who are watching this, that there's a potential that House and Senate Republicans could make the argument uh, that this was Rudy Giuliani, the president's personal attorney, and maybe Mick Mulvaney, the president's chief of staff, sort of freelancing doing these things in the Ukraine on their own without his approval. That was one thought that that could be their counter argument as they go forward. But the testimony is really pulling a picture together that shows President Trump was deeply involved in this and was paying attention and that he was part of these discussions um, all along. Gordon Sondland, the ambassador to the European Union, is going to be testifying publicly this week. I think his is probably going to be the possibly most explosive day just because he has a lot to answer for now. There's been a lot of contradicting testimony from other people, contradicting what Gordon Sondland had said already, and he had already amended his testimony once. So I think his is going to be one of the most exciting days where lawmakers on both sides are going to really pressure him to exactly what he knows. And if the president himself directed this whole thing about withholding the aid in order for these investigations to get underway. Yes. If you're closely following these impeachment proceedings, um, when Ambassador Sondland testifies this week. That might be the day that you stay home from work and watch the television uh, because there's going to be the potential for explosions on both sides. And we know, as you said, he 
amended his uh, first closed-door deposition after he said his memory had been refreshed about some of the events that are surrounding this phone call. Now that we know about another phone call he had with the president overheard by an aide to Ambassador Taylor in which he was talking about Ukraine and, and these investigations, more details that he has not been asked about before. This could be a real, uh, real surprise. We don't know what he's going to say. It could be a bit unpredictable. Yeah, he goes on Wednesday, but we have eight people testifying over three days, Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday. We're going to have a lot of testimony coming out again. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So they're only using or emitting certain amounts of CO2 or CO2 equivalent. So by the time they get to the end, they say they have actually taken like a pound of CO2 out of the atmosphere that would have been emitted otherwise to make a single bottle of 80 proof vodka. Joining us now is Adam Rogers, senior correspondent at Wired and author of Proof, the Science of Booze. Thanks for joining us, Adam. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about a new vodka that just hit the market. It's called Air, and it's a carbon-negative vodka. The manufacturers of this basically put it together by combining CO2 and water, and then they run it through this invention that they have that electrolyzes the carbon dioxide and water, and they get to make this vodka out of it. I'm simplifying it, obviously, right now, but Adam, tell us a little bit about this. It all sort of comes down to basic organic chemistry. Ethanol, which is the alcohol that we drink, if you're a drinker, that's what's in booze, right? So ethanol is a molecule, C2H6O, so two carbons, six hydrogens, one oxygen, in a very specific order. But if you can shuffle around, if you can kind of play the shell game with other molecules like carbon dioxide and water, you can put those into a sort of a battery type thing, an electrolyzer. What these guys have invented with this specific PhD chemist has invented a metal catalyst that combines those molecules, kind of breaks them apart, shuffles them around. Out the other end comes ethanol. Now, he started working on this because this researcher, Stafford Sheehan, started working on this as a researcher to make ethanol. Same stuff as you want to like power a, a car with or right. whatever. But he would always joke around with his lab mates that, you know, it is just booze. Like you don't even really have to filter it. It comes out even purer <laughs> than the stuff that you would make anywhere else because right. it's coming fresh off the catalyst, as it were. And so they were kind of kidding around. And then she and met a guy who worked for Diageo, this big booze transnational. And they were like, you know, you actually could drink this stuff. And yeah, you they sort of went on the run from there. You always need that other person to see kind of the bigger <laughs> picture and be like, you know what, we can make money off this thing and make this booze like a, yeah, right? a, a big thing. So let's talk a little bit about the science of it. Traditional booze versus air and how they're making it, because what they do come up with is something that is carbon negative, at least according to all their math. Here's what's sort of interesting about this is that the alcoholic beverages that people drink right. <laughs> um, basically start with yeast. Yeast is a fungus. It eats certain kinds of sugars. When it eats those sugars, it excretes ethanol, but also carbon dioxide and a bunch of other stuff that kind of becomes flavors and smells and what we might drink. That's the way all human beings have made that for thousands of years. You can take that stuff and then run it through a still, and it essentially concentrates the ethanol and gets rid of some of the other water. So you can go from beer that you make by fermenting grains to whiskey that you make by distilling beer, or you can ferment grape juice and get wine, and then you can distill that and get brandy. That's sort of how the cycle works. And then you can age it at the other end, right? You can put it in a wood barrel and you get flavors out of that. So what these guys do is get their carbon dioxide, they say, from 
the emissions of fermentation of places that are actually making CO2. And they say that that would just get emitted into the air. It's possible that they're actually getting it from a company that's just collecting that and would sell it to somebody else too. So you could argue that it wasn't actually going to get emitted. It was going to get used in other chemical processes. You know, CO2 is used in a bunch of different kinds of chemistry to make a lot of different stuff. But if their math is right, what they're saying is they buy CO2 that would have been emitted into the atmosphere and then contributed to global warming, you know, cause the end of the world, simple stuff like that. (laughs) But instead, they pull it in. They've got a company that has a life cycle analysis that says that they are collecting more CO2 than they use in the fuel for their trucks to move stuff around and all the machines that they use to collect and all that kind of stuff. So they're actually only emitting a certain amount of carbon dioxide. The distillery itself because they run the electrolyzer and they're powering that with either renewable energy that they pay for. So they've got to deal with a power company that only provides renewable energy, or they've got solar panels on their roof. So they're getting the electricity to run their electrolyzer from that. They get a a solution of like 20 to 25% ethanol off of the machine. So they take the 25% solution and then they run it through a still. Now, usually that's a really energy intensive process too, because it takes a lot of power to heat up. Stills essentially separate molecules by how volatile they are, which is how quickly they evaporate from heat. Because they got to go up and then over the top of kind of a long neck. If you've seen a still, you know what that looks like. But they say that they're using an electrical heater for the tank and the still, and that's powered from the same place, either the renewables or the solar. And then that comes out. So they're only using or emitting certain amounts of CO2 or CO2 equivalent. So by the time they get to the end, they say they have actually taken like a pound of CO2 out of the atmosphere that would have been emitted otherwise to make a single bottle of 80 proof vodka. The only other thing you need now is for the entire world to take up this vodka and uh, drink endless (laughs) amounts of it to save the world. But the important thing, so this bottle of air vodka, 750 milliliter bottle is about $65. The most important thing though is how does this taste compared to, you know, other high-end vodkas, things like that. You did an informal tasting in your office. What was the verdict on this? It might not surprise you if I say that as somebody who wrote a book about booze and is a journalist, that my office occasionally has cocktails once in a while. In a perfectly healthy and responsibly consumed manner. But there actually aren't a lot of vodka drinkers in my office. So there were some responses that were like, yep, that's vodka, all right? You know, there was a little of that uh-huh. um, vibe of like, yeah, that sure, is, that sure is vodka. And then they would ask me where I was hiding the single malt. But to me, it is a sweeter and somewhat more viscous juice than I am used to from vodkas. And I think, first of all, we were tasting it at room temperature, and that's not how probably we would consume that. I like super ice cold vodka if I'm going to drink it, but we were trying to see what the flavors were. And actually, if you have something that's cold, it's less volatile. So a lot of the aromatics don't bounce up as high. It kind of doesn't smell and taste the way it would at room temperature. So we were trying at room temperature. What Sheehan, who's the researcher, the scientist who makes the stuff said is that in the process, they're actually, instead of breaking a six carbon sugar, which is what you're doing when you're asking yeast to make you ethanol the old fashioned way, they might actually be making some fewer compounds than you would get out of that yeast powered fermentation, but other kinds of compounds too. And he's not totally sure yet, although they do a lot of gas chromatography and mass spectroscopy on what they're making at their distillery. There are a lot of things that scientists, no matter how good their analysis are, really don't know what the molecules are, even in something like vodka, which technically is only supposed to be ethanol and water, although often there are things at trace amounts that are contributing things to flavor. So I thought it was on the sweet side of the palate rather than a kind of a savory or like clean. I'm putting that in quotes with my fingers, but you can't see it because this is audio. And this seems a little bit weird, so forgive me. I sometimes think that there's a flavor axis that goes kind of between what like rubbing alcohol smells like and what nail polish remover smells like. And I don't say that to insult the stuff. So to me, this was more on the isopropyl on the rubbing alcohol side than the acetone than the nail polish remover side. 
you are a connoisseur of these things. Let's say you wrote the book on the science of booze, just kind of going off of what maybe some of your colleagues said, hey, that tastes like vodka. I mean, for this whole scientific process to make this new vodka, that's kind of a win right there. If it tastes like a lot of other vodkas, they might be more willing to drink it. And if it tastes kind of like other vodkas, when you're making a cocktail, even a high-end cocktail, some of that stuff gets masked in there. So that's kind of a win in and of itself right there. I would say two things about that. The first thing I'll say is there's a lot more experimentation that you can do. Like you can imagine this still being carbon negative with like adding some flavors in the still, which is how you make a gin or like trying some aging experiments, which Sheen said he wanted to try. So you get ex-bourbon casks and age the stuff in there and see what kind of flavors you pull out of the wood, but still using the same liquid. That's an interesting idea too. And there are actually some distilled sake, which is like shochu basically. So distilled rice wine, shochu. And there are a couple of companies who are putting that into whiskey barrels and getting a very whiskey-like, really interesting drink. I really, I think it's delicious. So there's some experimentation to be done in terms of the flavor. But I would say broadly, the really interesting thing here to me are the potential implications for all of the chemical processes that human beings use to make the kind of furniture of the everyday world. There's a lot of chemistry that goes on in the world that uses a lot of power. It's not the main source of greenhouse gas emissions, but it would be great if chemists and physicists and engineers started to think of ways to do some of the things that human beings expect them to do, and in fact will pay for, in a carbon neutral or carbon negative way. Instead of just trying to buy offsets or say, well, we're going to do the thing, but also plant trees, or we're going to do the thing, but contribute to some nonprofit that's doing regenerative agriculture or whatever, like all those things are really important and good, and we should do those things. But the idea of actually rebuilding the fundamental processes that human beings want to use to make a modern world, postmodern world, post-postmodern world, but to do it in a carbon negative way with the kinds of innovations that Sheehan is working on, that's really exciting to me and worthy of having a drink if you succeed. <laughs> I, I would definitely agree with that because, you know, as technology gets better, these processes demand another look at how we do these things. But in this current kind of situation that we're in where we're getting things like craft cocktails, craft drinks, craft beers, all this stuff, would a process like this really be successful when people, at least on the face of it, are trying to return to more natural ingredients, things like that? Yeah, that's the really interesting question, isn't it? Because you have to figure out how much of this tale you can tell to somebody sitting at a high-end cocktail bar or in an expensive liquor store and hope that the narrative is compelling enough to make them buy it or try it. Because with the craft distilling world right now especially relies on is build narratives that tend to be about authenticity and provenance. And we know the farms that are growing the corn that we're putting into the bourbon. I'm in the Bay Area, which is a hub of craft brewing and craft distilling. My favorite craft distillery in Alameda, in the story, I talked to Lance Winters, who's the distiller there at St. George. And I think they make really great stuff. But his whole point is the authenticity of the fruit, you know, selecting the pears at harvest so that he can make that into a brilliant pear de vie. He said that this air vodka almost seems soulless in a way yeah, because right. it lacks all of that other stuff. To him, because it is made literally from thin air, at worst, it's a marketing trick to him. And at best, he's saying it's soulless. It doesn't have the terroir, the provenance, the authenticity, the narrative, you know, something that grows from the ground that an artist can make into something new. And I, I see what he means. And Lance is a real smart guy, and he knows his science. He knows exactly what this is. But I do think that, well, first of all, this sort of experimentation is what keeps a field alive. And those kind of disagreements are disagreements among sophisticated people who are trying to make something that people want to drink. But they're also, as I say, like the idea that a chemical process like this can make ethanol for booze bodes really well for the idea that it can make other chemicals in a carbon negative way that people might want to use instead of the really unthinking and dangerous way that human beings have been living on the planet for the last few decades. 
Adam Rogers, senior correspondent at Wired and author of Proof, the Science of Booze. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Always happy to talk about it. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>